Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on at our museum. Today, you're listening to... Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator at the St. Catharines Museum. And Sarah Nixon, Public Programmer at the St. Catharines Museum. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of Indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. Throughout the COVID-19 health crisis, the museum has been working to deliver quality programming to our community through our online platforms. We have a responsibility to continue to connect with the community we serve. It is also important for us to share in moments of lightheartedness, learning, and to remember that we are all in this together. Today on Museum Chat Live, we'll share the stories of some of the trailblazing women who've made their mark on St. Catherine's history. We'll highlight some of the firsts for women in St. Catharines and also talk about our favorite Shiro's in our local Her Story. Get it? Get it? (laughs) Women's history, or Her Story, as we like to say, can often be told as a series of firsts. Because women were excluded from so much of active society for so long, we can go through a historical timeline and count the firsts for women in our history. This isn't to say that only those women who were first at something are more important than any other woman in history, but firsts are a good signifier of a society progressing and opening more opportunities for more people to be great at something. A history of firsts shows a history of a society becoming more inclusive. St. Catharines has probably seen a lot of firsts for women throughout our history. Our first female doctor in St. Catharines, that would be Dr. Gwendolyn Mullock. She graduated with a medical degree from the University of Toronto in 1927. And what's interesting is that her father was a doctor, Dr. J.M. Mullock. And what happened was she basically took over his medical practice when he died. But she was born at a time when definitely women were not doctors and even when women weren't allowed to vote, that came later. So uh, it's kind of interesting to see her and other women. There were other women in her uh, university class graduating in 1927, but it's interesting to see that kind of um, perseverance and also just sort of setting a goal for those types of people at that time when they were so discouraged from participating in that professional field. Uh, Dr. Malik was our first female doctor. Uh, She also did some postgraduate work in London and she eventually went back to Toronto and established her own medical practice in 1934. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting about Gwendolyn's story is that there isn't a lot of information about it. Mm -hmm. When we were doing research on her back in 2014, we didn't have a lot of information here in our own collection. Uh, We had to go to the University of Toronto archives to find a picture of her. The only picture that we could find was in her basketball team photo, sorry, medical women's basketball and tennis team photo. 
So the photo that we have of her, she's in the back row. That's the photo. It's part of the team team photo, and that's all we have. So it's kind of interesting that in addition to being discouraged from the medical career, that there isn't a lot of information collected on this first female doctor in the city in our collection. We do have a lot of information about her mother, which isn't bad, but it's interesting because Bessie, Bessie Malik was the president and secretary of the Imperial Order of the Daughter of the Empire, Daughters of the Empire. And Bessie was super involved in the community as that was a, that particular group was very involved and did lots of different things in that time and before 1950. So there's a lot of record of Bessie's activities and it's kind of sad that there's not a lot of records of her, of her daughter's activities, but you know, that's part of our history in terms of collecting (laughs) history (laughs) instead of her story in terms of collecting. Um, unfortunately, Gwendolyn, uh, died in 1950 after a long illness and her mother died a little bit later in 1952. Yes. Dr. Gwen Mullick has a really awesome, important first in uh, St. Catherine's history. Um, I also want to talk about St. Catherine's first elected woman to St. Catherine's City Council. Uh, that would be Estelle Cuff Hawley, who was elected in 1938. Now this was a big deal. Uh, She was trained as a teacher and she started her political career um, actually being elected to the Board of Education in St. Catharines in uh, 1934. And in this role uh, as part of the, the Board of Education, she introduced nursing services into schools. She introduced uh, music into the school curriculum, um, as well as advocated for better teachers' salaries. Now, what's interesting about Estelle Kavhali is for a long time on the Board of Education, she was the only female. And although she was uh, the chair of many of the subcommittees that the Board of Education put together, she was never actually honored with being the chair of the Board of Education. There was kind of this unwritten rule that um, the longest serving member of the board would eventually become the chairman, but when it came her time to be the longest serving board member, they passed her up and put, brought the, uh, the role of chairman to someone else who was much less qualified. So that just shows some of the obstacles that you know women are, are facing as they're trying to you know make a better community um, and advocate for, for a better life for a lot of people um, in their community. So Estelle Cuff-Hawley, she starts in the Board of Education in 1938. She runs as alderman for the city of St. Catharines Council and she is elected. So she is the first female alderman in St. Catharines and she again continues to be a big advocate for social welfare. Um, introducing you know minimum standards for housing um housing standards health care in schools um so she still continues to use her political role to you know bring these social welfare services into the city uh, estelle did run for mayor in 1944 however she was unsuccessful uh, but continued even um, after that to you know have this advocacy role have this activist role in the community bringing these services 
services to St. Catharines. So for that, we're thankful. Um, her story brings us up to 1976 when Brock University honored her with a doctorate, an honorary doctorate um, for her leadership in politics and education. So yeah, thank you Estelle for being awesome in uh, in St. Catharines. Okay, we're going to talk about Betty Lampard now. Uh, Betty Lampard was one of the first female journalists at the Standard and also was had a, a very popular column, drama and music critic column. How else do you say? Entertainment column, I guess you could say, and community column. She was born actually in New York City, which is kind of exciting. Uh, no big deal. Uh, and she studied uh, English and wanted to pursue journalism. Uh, when she graduated in 1931, there weren't a lot of jobs because of the economy was a shambles after the, in, in and after the Depression. So there wasn't a lot of jobs for women in journalism uh, or a lot of jobs at all. And uh, so less opportunity anyway. Eventually, she uh, married Jeffrey Lampard, who lived in St. Catharines. And uh, I'm not sure how they met, but that would be an interesting story mm -hmm. to hear. Uh, and they moved to St. Cat or she moved up to St. Catharines in 1934. But it wasn't until 1950 that Betty began uh, working at Standard, reporting on fashion trends, society news, drama, uh, mostly drama and entertainment. She was a huge advocate for the St. Catharines Symphony Orchestra, which later became the Niagara Symphony. Uh, and also the Shaw Festival and other theater groups and music groups in the city, uh, really bringing journalistic attention and media attention to those groups. And uh, Betty was a, a, a staple, a pillar mm -hmm. of uh, the arts community in St. Catharines, almost before there was an arts community. And it's really great. What's really great about, about Betty is that we have all of her articles. And she was, uh, there's a sample on the blog that we'll put in the, in the footnotes, but she was quite the writer. And mm -hmm. there's some, I can only describe them as some sassy <laughs> reviews of uh, some theatrical performances and presentations mm -hmm. in the city. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting. Uh, and I, I have no idea how people would react to them back then, but reading them today, they are... Uh, they're definitely trailblazing, I'll say that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that we have, you know, we're able to capture Betty's voice and Betty's personality in these columns. I think, you know, there's not as many, you know, not a, a lot of records of what women were writing and saying in the 20th century. So it's really great to have, to have Betty's voice come through in, in these newspaper articles. So now you can't talk about any first in St. Catharines, I think at least, without talking about Mary Malcolmson. Because of Mary Malcolmson, the very first Girl Guide troop in Canada was formed in St. Catharines in 1910. Now, Mary Malcolmson had a very big involvement in uh, the community, um, especially in carving a space for women in St. Catharines. She helped to found the St. Catharines Woman, Women's Canadian Club. She helped to found the Victorian Order of Nurses, the St. Catharines Council of Women. She was a big part of the Imperial Order Daughters of the Empire, the IODE. Um, the list really goes on about how she was able to 
form all of these groups that were spaces for women to get them more involved in the community. A lot of these groups were, you know, big at, you know, raising funds and volunteering and helping the less fortunate. And she was a big organizer in getting these women together, getting them out into the public sphere and really making them more active in society. There weren't as many opportunities for this active role in uh, the public sphere, um, and these women's organizations gave women uh, that opportunity. Now, naturally, uh, Mary's efforts and advocacy move into um, creating spaces for young girls as well, and this is what brings her to uh, found the first Girl Guides group in St. in St. Catharines. So the Girl Guides, this was founded in Great Britain um, in 1910, and you know it was really founded as a way to get girls who were interested in the Boy Scouts to have their own uh, space to go to, to you know be trained in good citizenship and good conduct and outdoor activities. So Mary takes this idea from Great Britain and, um, and establishes the first Girl Guides in all of Canada right here in St. Catharines. And, you know, Girl Guides still has such a big, um, you know, big footprint in the city today. There's a lot of different Girl Guides troops out there. Um, a lot of them do come to the St. Catharines Museum to do different tours and activities. Uh, so it's kind of cool to see this legacy come all the way up to today. <laughs> firsts is fun and all, but history's trailblazing women are so much more than firsts. There are so many women in St. Catherine's history who have done some pretty cool things, and they've done so while facing social obstacles and overcoming sexist barriers. The trailblazing women in our history are people that we can look up to, that inspire us, that have stood up against obstacles and tore down walls so that opportunities could be created for other women and girls. They are sheroes. So Adrian, I ask you this, who is your favorite shero in St. Catherine's history and what cool things did she do? There's a lot of really impressive stories and it's difficult to pick one. Um, so I'm gonna pick two. Um, fair, fair enough, fair, fair enough. enough. <laughs> uh, the first one I'm gonna talk about is uh, Catherine Welland Merritt. Uh, she's a, a favorite of mine to talk about, partially because of the time period that she was alive, partially because of her interesting life that she had, but mostly because she was a person of some privilege. She was the granddaughter of William Hamilton Merritt. She was the last person to live, last Merritt to live in Oak Hall, which is the CKTB White Merritt House. Um, over there in Yates uh, Street District, beside the bridge. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason why she was the last person to live in the house was that she gave up the house to be a convalescent home for returning soldiers at the end of the sec uh, First World War. So she moved to Rodman Hall briefly. But, you know, giving up your house mm -hmm. is... And it's, you know, a big house, and it's a historical house. Yeah, it's a family house. It's a family home, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, giving up the house was uh, must have been a decision that was difficult, but I understand from studying her and her life and her actions that she was a, a person of action and that she was sort of a, a decisive character. 
so it would have been hard, but at the same time, I can see her being like, all right, pack my bags, let's go, <laughs> you know? So that's kind of interesting. She uh, founded the St. Catherine's chapter or, and the Canadian chapter of the Queen Mary uh, Queen Mary Needlework Guild of Canada during uh, to, uh, you know, help with creature comforts for soldiers during the war. So that really says a lot about that class of woman at that time. Yes, they were privileged, but a lot of them rolled their sleeves up and got Mm -hmm. to work, Mm -hmm. mainly because their privilege allowed them to do that. She didn't have children, so she didn't have sort of home responsibilities of like kids to look after. So that allowed her to sort of go out and organize and work. Um, she was very well traveled and had some some sense of connection to the royal family through I think through friends of friends of friends, and so was was kind of responsible for establishing uh, the chapter the Canadian chapter of Queen Mary's uh, Needlework Work Guild, which was also established throughout the empire. But it was kind of interesting. She was uh, almost stuck in Germany at the beginning of the war. Her and a couple of other socialite women. The socialite's the best word to describe them, but that you know, Saint Catherine socialite isn't the same as you know someone living in Paris. But anyway, they were in Germany on a trip on a big you know summer whirlwind trip to Europe. And they were in Germany, and war blo- broke out, mm-hmm. and uh, they kind of had to narrowly escape. And it's a really interesting story that's recorded in Olive Weller's uh, diary that's here at the St. Catherine's Museum collection. And uh, Catherine is often portrayed as the decisive, mm-hmm. let's get a move on yeah. character in that story. And Olive is usually described as, what's happening? <laughs> I don't care about anything. I have a German lesson and I'm waiting on my new eyeglasses and that kind of thing. <laughs> Another key female hero or shiro, I should say, uh, if we're using that word today, is uh, a really favorite one of mine is um, Lillian Phelps. And Lillian was born in 1859. She was the daughter of a, a local blacksmith. She actually went to the Philadelphia School of Oratory. So right from a very early age, she was interested in speaking and activism and she was super successful and super popular i wish we knew more about what motivated her to Mm -hmm. go that route Mm -hmm. Uh, that would be a really interesting story she was uh lillian was very involved with and when i say very she was national president and i think she was a recording secretary for the international committee as well for the women's christian temperance union which organized tons of different groups uh, mainly with the uh, goal of temperance, but uh, those early women's groups and committees were the foundation for the uh, suffrage movement yeah. that came a little bit later in the early 1900s. So Lillian was a little little early for suffrage, but she was uh, speaking all over North America as early as the 1880s and into the 1890s, she was quite the advocate for women's equality and equal pay, which is insane because it's still an issue today. She wrote an article about equal pay. It is fairly religious in tone, but again, the women's activism in in this time period was uh, somewhat religious because that's how 
uh, things were getting organized. So that was the sphere in which they could work through. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, charity and uh, religion and uh, temperance were things that were really the paths that were open for them to organize. Mm-hmm. So they kind of snuck in mm-hmm. additional things, including equal pay. In fact, the the book that the article appears in is a uh, not about that at all. It's about it's really about temperance and like how important you know the church is in establishing temperance you know, in the government and how people should vote and blah, blah, blah. And so she's got this, she's just like slotted in this wicked article uh, that was basically saying, it doesn't matter who, what gender you are, you got to be paid for what you're doing. And uh, for that article to come out, I think that was 1903. Oh no, women as wage earners in 1890. Wow. Over a hundred years ago. Over 120 years ago. Wow. No, wait. 130 years ago. 130, yeah. There's Stop. my math. I'm not, I'm not a mathematician. We're historians, okay? That's right. 130 years ago, she's writing about equal pay. So here's a St. Catherine's example. In St. Catherine's, there are two teachers in our central school, which is on Church Street. The building is there. It's, it's the Folk Arts building now. There are two teachers in our central school, both doing entrance examination work. Last year, the woman promoted 14 students. The man, two. The woman gets $600, the man gets $900. Giving as it as is granted $100 for the responsibility of the headmaster, which is fair, you get a little bit extra for being responsible. Why is it that women whose work is superior to the man's gets $200 less in wages? Oh man. Boom. And the whole article is like that. Snap and in so, here. right? Like it's <laughs> it's incredibly early for uh, or at least I shouldn't say early because obviously the, she wasn't the only one who held these views, um, but it's an early example mm-hmm. of this kind of writing. And I think that's why it shines mm-hmm. so brightly mm-hmm. uh, for uh, us. And what's great is that she's a St. Catherine's example. Mm-hmm. And of course, she's buried at Victoria Lawn Cemetery. Mm-hmm. Which is super, super awesome. And I just love talking about her story. Like, it's just, uh, it's so neat. And again, it's that St. Catherine's connection. Like, here we have someone with an international platform, and she's using it to talk about women's issues and has St. Catherine's connections in that. I think that's so cool. Definitely Lillian Phelps is a Shiro. Thank you for sharing, Adrian. <laughs> awesome. You're welcome, of course. Uh, so I, I, too, have some local Shiro's that I could go on about, but t- today I want to bring our attention to Isabella Frampton Hawkins who is an industrious Shiro in the early night? oh my gosh, early 20th century. So she was born, I think, in Montreal, but her family, they came to St. Catharines because her father, Alfred, uh, was going to be an engineer at the Packard Electric Company. Isabella also joined the family in working at Packard Electric, and she was the forelady of the lamp department, and eventually she would manage the lamp department. So already this is, you know, the early 1900s, and she's managing this industrial department at at Packard's. But she continues this further. She um, establishes the Dominion Electric Company in 1907 in partnership with a man named James Hawkin. Now, this is interesting. Isabella and James, they marry the following year, and James is a pharmacist. He's a pharmacist by trade. He's only doing pharmacy stuff. 
It's Isabella who has this idea to work in in the electric field and she establishes the mini electric company and she does so in partnership with James because that's really the only way she can start her own business. Even in the partnership records, which we have copies of here in the St. Catharines Museum, James Hawken is the is the, the business owner and Isabella is considered the spinster who signs in partnership with this. So there's already some gendered languaging um, in the partnership documents, but it's really Isabella who is running this business. The company rewires incandescent light bulbs, which is a pretty intricate process, and Isabella directs and oversees it, while James is working in the pharmacy, okay? So there is some... Um, some discrepancies there. Despite the fact that Isabella is running the company, there are no mentions of Isabella in any official company records from the date of her marriage until James passes away in 1918. What she's doing for the company, what she's doing for the field, is really hidden under um, her husband's name. After her husband dies in 1918, uh, we start to see Isabella Hawkins' names comes onto city directories and onto the official company uh, papers. She changes the name of the company. It's now called Dominion Tungsten Lamp Factory by around the 1920s. And this factory had about 100 employees. This is a pretty big employer in St. Catharines. And the company's again rewiring burnt out light bulbs. Um, so recycling burnt out light bulbs, and she establishes this nationwide into an international business. So she's importing light bulbs from Toronto, Montreal, as well as many large American cities, including New York City. Now Isabella, she is very industrious. She at one point sets up a, a factory in the United States and really being this innovative, industrious businesswoman in the city. So I have a lot of respect for her, her hustle, for her struggle, that she had this great business plan and business idea, but wasn't really recognized for it until, until her husband died. So I'm glad that we're able to uh, give her uh, some much deserved praise and attention now. trailblazing women. But this is not to say that women have to be inventors or famous or the first of anything in order to be considered trailblazing or to have their story be a part of history. We all have a story worth sharing. If you have a story you'd like to share about trailblazing women in your life, we'd love to hear it. Please comment on our blog or send it in a Facebook message or on our Facebook page. We want to try to use these community stories in our upcoming programs. Special thanks and lots of recognition to Meredith Leonard, our former visitor services coordinator who did all the research for all of these stories today and for the Leading the Way exhibit. So special shout out to Meredith. Hi, Meredith. Uh, you can visit our blog, stcatherinesmuseumblog.com to read the profiles of all the women we talked about. Uh, as well, we'll post each profile in the footnotes to this episode on the blog. Make sure to subscribe to Museum Chat Live and our other podcast, One Hour in the Past, on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at STC Museum. 
and on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash St. Catherine's Museum. That's it for this episode of Museum Chat Live. This podcast was produced by Sarah Nixon and Adrian Petrie. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catherine's Museum and Welland Canal Center and the City of St. Catharines.